counted among the outlaws. He said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws. To Becoming Outlaws podcast, which engages celebrities, scholars, and diverse voices in candid conversations about following Jesus, defying societal norms, and we attempt to explore profound questions of faith. Sometimes they're not so profound. Those who reject the Christian faith usually do on the grounds of some of the same issues, such as, in the Bible, God seems guilty of genocide at times, or uh, the Bible seems to condone slavery. Does it belittle women and place them as a second-rate second citizen? Or if God is good, why is there evil? Or more personally, why didn't he answer my prayer? Or why does he allow suffering in my life or in the world at large? Or the question of hell is a big one, an eternal torment. My frustration is that there are solid biblical answers to all of those. And when some of the same people asking those questions take the time to discover them, typically they become believers. They find, they find that God is just, fair, and good. And it all does make sense. And scripture has been misrepresented, in my view, in many ways. It's the messengers who have got it wrong, not the message. A person who explains these things or defends the biblical truth and accuracy is called an apologist. We have one today, and after reading his latest book, I think one of the best. Uh, we can't cover all of those, not even close today. On the podcast, we will. I'm going to hit all of them. But today, I'd like to hit the topics regarding women and slavery in Scripture. Abdu Murray's latest book, More Than a White Man's Religion, in my view, is a must-read for every believer and non-believer alike because he goes in-depth to answer in a fair and accurate way those questions. Abdu was raised a Lebanese Muslim, and until a nine-year historical, philosophical, a theological, and scientific investigation, it led him to the Christian faith. He is also the founder and the president of the Embrace the Truth organization. So let's get into it and welcome Abdu. Hey, Ken. How are you? Hey, very good. I'm excited to talk about these. Oh, me too. Me too. Thank you. I wrote a whole book about it. I ought to be excited about it. You did write a whole book about it. Yeah, it's really good. And uh, one, reading is almost like a lost art form. Sit down with mm. a book and Kindle has kind of helped. You know, you can read in the dark and this and that. Yeah. But I do so many of these where I talk to authors, I don't have time to read them all. But um, with audiobooks, there's no excuse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's my commute to work. It's you got to go to the grocery store or whatever. Mm -hmm. You just pick up. You can hear a chapter on your way to Myers or something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So I really did enjoy this book and I actually will, uh, I listened to it and I will listen to it again, probably a few times because there's some issues that you just want to know well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, you did the homework that saves us a bunch of time. So mm -hmm. let's just get right into it. So if I was raised a Protestant, evangelical Protestant, and um, there has been, I've seen, even in that world where I thought the placement of 
women in the faith setting, whether it's church or in the mm -hmm. home, seemed more restrictive than actually what I was reading. Mm -hmm. I would read something, I'd be taught what Paul said, mm -hmm. and then I'm reading about a woman who's leading the entire nation of Israel. Well, I don't hear that in church or in the New Testament. You know, there's a, a apostle with a woman's name after it and all of this. But yet I seem to have been taught this real refined little one or two sentences from Paul. Mm -hmm. How does that jive? Yeah. And I think that um, uh, part of that is because scripture has um uh, a lot of complexity to it. There's a lot of nuance that you have to go into. In other words, sometimes there are things, there are passages of the Bible that seem crystal clear about women's authority. Uh, so it's, you, know, you were referencing, for example, Deborah, who was uh, in the Old Testament appointed as a judge in the time of the judges over the entire nation of Israel. So um, when we say that the biblical uh, data or the biblical passages don't allow for any authority for women over men, but we see this whole thing where Deborah actually is an authority over the entire nation, which includes women and men. Um, then you see there's prophetesses in the Old Testament. They, they Prophetesses actually speak and are prophetic in the New Testament as well. You see leaders in the church of various stripes and various strata in the New Testament. Um, so you see this, but then you also see passages where <coughs> um, <coughs> women uh, tend to be uh, submissive and or subverted. Uh, in the Old and New Testaments, and it's oftentimes by God's people where you seem to see, seem to see this. And so there's a bit of a tension that arises when you see this. Like, for example, you have the the so-called um, texts of terror, someone, some have called them, uh, like 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33b uh, to, to 35, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it suggests that women ought to be silent and can't even speak in church, let alone lead anything in church. And so we get these, uh, these seemingly clear passages of the Scripture scriptures would say, see, women can't have authority at all. But then when you do a careful reading, both of the passages that allow for and, and, and um, actually uh, support women's authority and the scriptures or the passages that seem to limit women's authority, I think when you have a careful reading of these things, you begin to see that a much more nuanced picture and a more historically dependent um, narrative approaches. Which is to say this, that there are historical contexts in which some of these passages are given. Remember, this is the Bible is a book written, I believe, timelessly timely, which means that it's always relevant at all times. But it also has to be culturally relevant to the times in which it was actually written and delivered to people. So it has to apply to the ancient Near East and in the cultural context of those living in the ancient Near East. And sometimes the specifics are limited to or directed directly at the people at that time. But its principles and maybe even its details are also applicable to our time. And so the question becomes, how do we make sense of these things in light of its historical context, but also its universal applicability? So I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, in the New Testament, for example, when you read it, I'm just looking at it right now, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33b to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, Paul writes, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That sounds bad. However, 
when you look at the context in which the Corinthian church actually is birthed, and remember, Paul is writing to a church in its infancy. It's not a fully formed church. He's also writing at a time when women did not have an education. Most women, especially women in Judea, um, weren't allowed any sense of a robust education. In some senses, they weren't allowed any education whatsoever. And so in the Christian movement, you have this vaunting of women, elevating them to, to um, the status as equals to men, but you also have them coming into church from various religious uh, backgrounds, whether it's in the Judaism of the time, or it's in the pagan Romanism, Roman uh, pagan and Greek pagan um, uh, religions of the area, uh, where women um, weren't allowed to teach either, but they did have certain levels of spiritual insights, uh, so-called, to those to those areas. So what happens is these churches are born, they're infants, the women and the men are excited about their newfound faith and their newfound uh, personhood, their equality, all these things through the Christian faith, and women who aren't qualified yet, not because they're inherently sort of inferior to men, but because they haven't had the proper education that men typically have had the opportunity to enjoy, are not yet qualified to lead the church theologically. But they come in and they begin to do so. And in some senses, they brought in some of the pagan cultish practices um, of you know, considering childbirth to be a curse or wearing certain headdresses and saying certain things in certain ways to be the expression, valid expression of faith. So they're bringing religious ideas outside of the Christian faith into the church, and they're starting to usurp the um, qualifications and the um, the authority given to certain men, not because they're men, but because they're qualified, because they've actually had the education. So what Paul is warning about, both in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, is uh, the usurpation of authority that you don't have this qualification yet to speak this way in church. And remember, these are not big halls and churches like we see today. These are actually happening in people's homes where yeah. you're a large gathering or a small gathering. And so chaos cannot result. And so Paul, in order to keep orderliness, is basically saying, you don't have the qualifications yet to say something and speak. So you need to be careful about this, and we need to make sure there's order here until you do have those qualifications. Now, someone might say, but he doesn't say that in those passages. No, he doesn't, but the historical context helps us with this. But also, there's something really important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for example, Paul says, don't speak, and all these kind of things. And it's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he suggests, don't speak, and all that. But three chapters in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Three chapters before 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul specifically says that women are to prophesy and pray in church. Those necessitate speaking. You have right. to speak in order to do that. So Paul can't be taking away something in 1 Corinthians 14 that he granted in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's not saying don't speak. Paul is talking about teaching and doctrinal authority and rightly dividing the, the Old Testament, because at the time that's what they had, the Old Testament scriptures. And women certainly weren't qualified, not because of their inability intellectually, but because of their inopportunity, because men had denied them that education for quite some time. So that's, I think, an example, one example, and in the book I give many, of ways when you read carefully texts that seem 
to be misogynistic actually aren't as misogynistic as we might think. And there are three different views on this. There are Christians who say that, you know, there's complementarians who say Christian women can't have authority over men in any way, shape, or form. Then there's what's called a soft complementarian, that women can have certain authority, but not ultimate authority. Then you have egalitarians who say that they read the Bible in a way that also allows for this uh, kind of authority and that kind of thing. And what I want to point out is that all of them value women as equals. But they're trying to wrestle with, I think, honestly, wrestle with what the Bible actually has to say about this. So that's a, what, that's just one example, Ken. Yeah, it seems like, at least in the Protestant circles or evangelical circles, there's been this, as far as I know, not a definite, here's what it is, here's what it isn't. But they will let, well, there's very prominent women teachers out there that mm-hmm. can teach in general, but they still don't have authority in the church and they're not they don't have authority over men. Don't you think mm-hmm. it's kind of like a modern day compromise that's been quietly given is let Beth Moore, let Joyce Meyer do what they do. It's really for women and they're not pastors. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's part of the uh, complementarian egalitarian debate. So mm-hmm. a complementarian would say that as they read the Bible passages, what they would say is that women and men are equal, but they have complementary uh, gifts and offices within the church. So a hard complementarian might say something like, a woman can have authority, but it has to be over other women and children, but it can't be over men. Um, uh, Partly because they read something that, you know, Paul says, I don't allow a woman to have an authority over man, over a man. And so they they, they apply that universally and say that's a universal thing. Um, uh, Others would say sort of a soft complementarian is that women can have certain authorities, including over men in certain offices, but not in the church. Um, Then you have another form of compromise. This is why it's complex. And this is why I think I actually appreciate the complexity because it gives a nuance to the situation. Because if we say it's either this or that, it can't be, it can't be uh, anything else. Well, then we don't have any sense of really wrestling with things together. But the fact that there's a spectrum, so you have hard complementarian all the way to hard egalitarian, a hard egalitarian would say that, um, uh, women and men have equal authority in every way, shape, and form, and there's no distinction among them whatsoever. So a woman could be a head pastor, not just a pastor, but a head pastor, um, the executive pastor, a founding pastor of a church. And that's more of a hard complementarian, uh, sorry, egalitarian view. But then there's also a soft complementarian view, which says that women can be authoritative, um, like Beth Moore, like um, uh, others as well, where they can have authority in some ways, and men can listen to what they had to teach, but they can't run the church or even have a high mm-hmm. office in the church. So the, the fact that there's a spectrum here, um, I think in one sense uh, allows us to say, we're trying to honestly wrestle with this issue without being bigoted. Um, uh, and how you come out, I don't try to resolve the conflict in the book. What I do suggest, though, is that there are avenues and opportunities for us to try to resolve these ourselves. And as we try to do that, I think what we'll see is people are trying their best to understand the Bible in its historical context, including some of those limiting factors I had said before about why Paul says what he says, but also um, apply it to our day today. And it's tricky business. It's tricky business. That doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not valuable. It means that it's tricky business. We do this with the Constitution of the United States all the time. We try to apply things people wrote 200 years ago into a situation that's modern and technologically advanced. It doesn't mean we should throw it out. It just means we have to go about the tricky business of being faithful to the document and to the spirit of what it says while understanding that um, there are new contexts to uh, be responsible for. 
Yeah. I mean, I've been studying scripture my whole <clears throat> whole life, and that's one of the areas I still, I, I'm not 100% on. Yeah. Um, I know it's been misrepresented both ways. Yeah. And uh, I think we've really missed some great teaching and some great words from women that have been silenced. Yes. And I also think there's uh, a, a kind of a liberal movement that goes way beyond, even if it's scripturally correct, I don't know, but kind of like the... Um, more of a rebellion against mm -hmm. God and his rules than what are we allowed to do? Um, yeah. That, you, well, you know what I'm saying? Those are like the oh, two yeah. uh, there, there's, uh It's so funny because it's not just this area. I mean, there's so many areas where um, human beings are given to pendular swings. You know, we, we, we like a pendulum. We, we don't go in the middle. We go as far as to the right as we can or far to the left <laughs> as we can, depending on what we're reacting to. Um, and I think that goes true, by the way, for... Um, accommodations when it comes to culture. We say that thus and such is no longer really a sin. It may have been something that was considered sinful back then because of these reasons, but today we know better. Um, or we reinterpret scripture to try to get around some of the sticky stuff. And yeah. I think that that's not really responsible either to the text of the scriptures and respectful to God, nor do I think it's respectful to each other. Um, you don't, if you don't like what the Bible says, don't you, you're, not, you're not entitled to edit it. You are entitled to reject it. If you don't like it, reject it. That's fine. And I think there's going to be consequences, unfortunately, uh, in terms of your relationship with God. But what you're not entitled to do, I don't think, is if this book is from the transcendent source, then we trust that the one who created time knows what he's doing when he gives us certain edicts and certain ideas and, and, and gives us the brains in our head and the wisdom and the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, to actually parse these things out well. But what we're not supposed to do is edit it. We're not supposed to change what it says to make it fit what we like. Rather, it's the opposite. We ought to sort of think about how are my desires coloring what I read as opposed to how is what I read changing my desires? Yeah. I mean, the stomach turning part is the, uh, you know, the abuse of yeah. just not the full scope, just taking Paul's words out of context, out of what you're showing is um, him saying the opposite a few chapters later mm -hmm. um, and saying, you know, women stay silent in the church and be so submissive in the home that the man just kind of rules it with a rod of iron. And, mm -hmm. and they're basically um, sort of slaves in life and who wouldn't rebel yeah. against that. And since they're, yeah. it's mis since it's misrepresented, they rebel against God, the faith and, and all of that. Well, I, and I also think that Christians are, um, oftentimes as guilty of perpetuating the stereotype that keep women away, yeah. um, or anybody for that matter. You could have a, a man who just feels that women should be, and rightfully so, feels that women should be men's equals, and then feels like, oh my goodness, this this, this religion doesn't allow for that. And that's, that's simply counter to history. Uh, it was Michael Kruger who made this stark statement, um, and I referenced him in the book, is that in the early years of the Christian movement, uh, women were flocking to it. Women and children were flocking to it. In fact, the pagan elites of the Romans and the Greeks, they were making fun of Christianity as the religion of women and children yeah. because women were flocking to it. They were leaving the misogyny of their paganistic cultures or their errant expressions of Judaism in order to find the equality and the value in the Christian movement. Why? Because Jesus... Um, uh, infuse them with that value. And I could go into story after story, and I do in the book, of where when you look at these texts that you find in Paul or other places in the scriptures, even the Old Testament, but you look at them through the lens 
of Jesus's life, you begin to see that which might have been a little cloudy. Now you begin to see them even more clearly because of the way Jesus vaunted the value of women. And I can give countless examples of how that, how that works out. Um, uh, so my point being here is that oftentimes Christians are the reason people don't necessarily want to read the rest of scripture. Right. But what I would suggest to you is if you look to Christ himself and how he lived the scriptures out, maybe you'll see a better perspective. Yeah. And you reference strongly uh, his conversation with the woman at the well. But if you'd mm -hmm. expound a little bit on, because it was so obscure, I, I mm -hmm. enjoyed when you talked about um, the Mary and Martha mm -hmm. and just a rab. We don't, someone actually, it seems like another submissive thing. Huh? Some woman mm -hmm. sitting at the foot of a man learning from yeah. his words, but yeah. it's not the foot of a man. It's the foot of a rabbi where only men had been previously. Yeah, and it's, it's actually, uh, even even more than that, Ken, is because it's not just that he's, she's sitting at the, in the Mary and Martha story, where, where Mary has chosen to sit at the feet of a rabbi, as if he's, she's like some kind of submissive that sits on the floor while he sits on a cushion or a chair. No, not even every man got to sit at the foot of a rabbi. To sit at the feet of a rabbi is a euphemism. Does it necessarily mean you're sitting at someone's feet? Maybe, but it also can mean simply is that uh, it's a euphemism or an idiom that means to learn from someone who has authority and training. Yeah. So here's the context of this story. And, and oftentimes, you know, Christians will read the Mary and Martha story. And, you know, so we, so we sort of have familiarity with it and we think it means one specific thing. And it does mean this thing, you know, the idea that you can't be so busy in life like, Mar like Martha that you don't stop and smell the Messiah once in a while, you know, um, that you go on with life and you just don't stop and uh, realize who Jesus actually is. So, you know, the context, of course, for those unfamiliar is that um, Jesus and the boys are going to come over for dinner. And Mary and Martha are uh, preparing their home to receive uh, Jesus and the disciples. And like good Middle Easterners, they're going to be extremely hospitable. And Martha goes about the work. And Mary, of course, Jesus arrives and he's there and she sits at Jesus's feet learning from him rather than helping out in the kitchen. What's interesting here is that Martha has been so acculturated by the misogyny of her day that her only place in life is either in the kitchen or in front of a spindle make, to, make, to make clothes or with children, whatever it is. She's so acculturated to being put in her place when she sees a woman, even her own sister, breaking the mold and getting out of her place, she gets upset. So she says to, to Jesus, Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? Tell her to come help me. You'll notice something immediately. She doesn't ask Jesus. She doesn't say, Jesus, would you come help me? It never occurs to her to ask Jesus to help. Jesus would never, a man, I should say, would never come into the kitchen. Um, what Jesus says to her is remarkable. And he does say, you know, the lesson of be, uh, of don't get so busy that you, you miss opportunities. But in the context of women who were denied any kind of education whatsoever, and I quote quite a bit of the rabbis of Jesus's day, both before and after and during, who would say that teaching a woman the law is useless and you never, because women don't have the brains of a man, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus says to Martha, when she gets mad at Mary, she said, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but only one thing is needful. And you'll notice this. Mary has chosen what is better. She used her free will, which you have, you thought you didn't have any, but Mar Mary has chosen, used her free will, what is better, and it will not be taken from her. In other words, this society has taken this from you both. 
And now you're trying to take it from her too. And it won't be taken from her. Join us. You can exercise your individual freedom, your free will as well. You're not a slave to the kitchen. You're not necessarily to be put in one place or one place only. That is an example of how Jesus wants the value of women time and time again. Yeah. And even with our perspective of we take, we'll take that story, but then mm-hmm. in the back of our subconscious, we have Paul's words about women in the church. And then we mm-hmm. just read it as, as Martha read it was, oh, that one's about, um, well, women should be helping in the kitchen, <laughs> but yeah. it's better to learn scripture is more important than mm-hmm. missing this whole thing about Jesus being a rabbi and the mm-hmm. privilege of learning as a teacher, yeah. even that a lot of men wouldn't have had. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, even on the day of Pentecost, you know, what's going on here with all these people speaking in other languages when the disciples, yeah. along with the women, mm-hmm. being filled with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. It stated, well, this is what the prophet Joel said, that your mm-hmm. sons and your daughters will prophesy. And like mm-hmm. you said, prophecy is the Holy Spirit speaking things through you. And mm-hmm. it's the women mm-hmm. equally. But yet the, God's going to speak through them, but the church is going to shut them up. It just doesn't. Um, well, it's, it's interesting you say this, you say this, Ken, because I, I just remembered, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, the, the, the passage that suggests women should remain silent, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as I pointed out, women can pray and prophesy in church, and those are obviously necessarily speaking-involved activities. And in fact, prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, is ranked as a higher-order gift than speaking, than teaching. So everyone gets to prophesy, including women in this wonderful gift that is ranked as a higher gift in some sense than teaching itself in, yeah. the, in the early church. So I think you're quite right. And Pentecost is, is an example of a lot of things, one of which I think is um, the, the expression of God's gift, uh, equally, equally offering out and parsing out gifts to both men and women. Yeah. Well, there's a lot more on this. Uh, mm-hmm. We could go for hours, but I'll just tell people listening that if you're a man, you should read this book. Uh, if you're not a man, you should get this book and use it in your ladies' Bible studies and mm-hmm. in your group, you know, at least this part of it mm-hmm. and go through all the examples because because uh, I'll do early goes in depth. But I, I didn't want to use up all the time without talking about. So what's this deal with um, looking like the Bible condones slavery? We had a whole half of America at one time. Yeah. That whether they believed it or not, they said they believed it. Mm-hmm. I know it was more economic, but their yeah. economics were based on Christian mm-hmm. people claiming scripture taught that slavery was okay and they were doing yeah. the right thing. And yeah. um, what's going on there? So when um, uh, so the Bible does reference slavery and it references slavery in, in two sort of contexts. It references it descriptively and prescriptively. And uh, descriptive is when you just describe the way something is. So you describe some horrible evil and you just describe that it's happening. You're not condoning it. You're just describing that it's happening. Sure. A prescription would be that you not only describe it, but you condone it and you actually prescribe that you should do this. So the question becomes, what does the word slavery mean in the Bible? And sometimes the context, of course, is king. Um, <clears throat> when you look at the word slave, for example, um, in the Bible, 
it has multiple meanings. Uh, sometimes it can mean someone who is owned as property of another person. And that's usually in the descriptive sense. In other words, when God is, through the Bible, describing the evils of humanity. Other times when the word slave is used, it can be retranslated as bondservant. It doesn't always necessarily have to mean someone who has owned his property, so sort of what's called chattel slavery. And oftentimes when the Bible gives a lot of commands and a lot of regulations on so-called slavery, <clears throat> it's not describing chattel slavery, owning people as property, and it's certainly not describing race-based chattel, chattel slavery. Um, it's describing bond servitude. It's more of a financial thing than it is a, a thing where someone actually is owned, kidnapped, forced into, out of their own free will, into in, or born into slavery and all these things. That's not what the Bible condones. So oftentimes what people think of when they think of slavery, the first thing, especially here in America, we think of when we or in the West, we think slavery. <clears throat> we equate anything where the word slave is involved to antebellum southern slave trade or yeah. antebellum Southern slavery institutions. And that's natural. I get why people do that, because it's the most recent iteration of institutional slavery we have uh, in, in our in our memory. Um, uh, of course, slavery still exists to this day in the form of child, child and women sex trafficking, and even males. Um, uh, so we haven't abolished it yet. We've tried. But we naturally equate when the Bible says slave with that. The reason why that's dangerous with regard to understanding the Bible is the word slave can mean different things. Much like the word foot can mean two different things. If I say foot, no one knows if I mean without context, whether I mean a 12 inch span of space, or if I mean the things at the end of my legs. Now, if I say, well, my foot hurts. Now you know what I mean, because context is important. Well, the word slave is like that. So slave can be a description of someone owned his property, or it can mean someone who is voluntarily engaged in some kind of servitude or even change themselves to a cause greater than themselves. So for example, my name, Abdu, my name is an Arabic name. <clears throat> and now Arabic and Hebrew are Semitic languages. They share the same Semitic root. So the, so, so the word for slave in Arabic is Abed. The word for slave in, in Hebrew is Obed. They're very, very similar. My name is not an insult. I'm not called slave Abdu. You know, it means literally God's servant or God's slave, but in a way that's honorific. We see this in the Old Testament as well. People's names. Obed is one of the, is a leader in the, in, in the people of Israel. Um, <clears throat> Obadiah is the name of a Bible, a, 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 a book of the Bible. And the word slave is right in there. It's mm -hmm. in his name. So this is not always an insult, and it's not always a pejorative description of something. It can mean something very valuable. Does so, it kind of mean, I hate to interrupt, does it kind of mean in a positive way, like someone who has great work ethic? Because if the, new if the Old Testament would have changed some of the word slavery to employment mm -hmm. or employment contracts, we would have a totally different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And do some of these names kind of refer the honor in self-sacrifice in the labor and the hardworking person this is yeah and not yeah. and not chained to slavery yeah they've, they've essentially chained themselves because they devoted themselves to someone yeah or they devoted themselves to something so it's work ethic is a great way to put it but i also think it's a matter of an emotional that, that work ethic is an expression of someone's devotion and voluntary devotion to another person we become bond servants of christ as it were um or slaves to god we do that on purpose um, and we consider that a badge of honor when someone says you act like a slave to this, to, to this God, 
Yes, in fact, I do. I hope you notice that, you know, kind of a thing. Now, in the regular, the issue, though, that the society has is not just with the word itself, but with the Bible seems to regulate slavery as if it condones it. So this is the important thing. The first thing is this. This is not the same thing as Southern antebellum slavery. In, in the South or in the North Atlantic slave trade, you had people kidnapping people based on their race and making them into servants based on their race. And you could own them, buy them, and sell them. Um, <clears throat> And you could beat them and you could even kill them because they were property, not people. You see nothing like this in the Old Testament. You don't see that. What you see is the regulation of what's called indentured servitude. So someone has a debt that they can't pay off to someone or someone else. They will sell their services, in, 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 essence, in essence, sell themselves, much like, you know, how, you know, the, um, the, uh, the Chicago Bulls acquired Dennis Rodman from you know what they they, they they didn't acquire him they acquired his talents and his services under contract mm -hmm. um and that contract is legally binding by the way he can't just stop without penalty um that's not slavery that's not the same thing so in the old testament it's volunteer have, servitude exactly now it has consequences if you leave that servitude but you'll notice something in the old testament when someone voluntarily enters into a servitude, rather than be thrown into a debtor's prison, they enter into servitude. Um, one, they can actually pay the debt off. And if they pay the debt off through their work, and they're also allowed not only the job they're working for the master for, the so-called master, but they're also entitled to actually do other jobs and make more money doing other things. That's not like the slavery South is at all. So not only do you have no kidnapping, in fact, the Bible would uh, uh, impose the death penalty on anyone who kidnaps someone and involuntarily drags them into slavery. It, re it requires your death for you doing that. So clearly that's not allowed, but the person gets to pay off the debt and go free at some point, and even through their own gainful employment outside of their service to the master. Every seven years, the, the so-called slave or the servant is uh, set free. Even if their debt is not paid, they're set free. We should and, have years of jubilee. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We should do that with the tax code. Um, yeah. Uh, by the way, that's where we get our bankruptcy code of seven years. That's where we get that from. Oh, right. Really? Um, yeah. Um, it's 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 a there's a precedent uh, behind all this. Um, then every fifth in the year of jubilee, you just mentioned it, Ken. In the year of jubilee, if the seven years haven't come and it happens to be a year of jubilee, and you've been in debt in in debt and in indentured servitude for all of seven days or seven minutes. And the year of Jubilee comes, you are to be set free of your debt. It's to be and that's forgiven. That's a 50th year. Yeah, every 50th year. Right. So, so uh, to, to go in, like, I love doing this. So, yeah. 50 days or really Pentecost spiritually was a Jubilee, right? Because mm -hmm. we're set free from sin, which uh, I know what you meant when you said there wasn't um, slavery in the Old Testament as far as condoning it. But the Hebrews with the Egyptians would be slavery the mm -hmm. bad slavery right exactly because they were race into that. oh okay sorry i'm, I'm jumping it, ahead it, of you yeah but, no no but you're right and that is seen you mentioned a death penalty where actually all the egyptian army died uh mm -hmm. for a penalty for actually having that kind of slavery yeah that wasn't voluntary yeah, absolutely. And you see throughout the scriptures in the Hebrew, um, for the, to the Hebrews, uh, where God repeatedly says to them, even for the foreigner who's not an Israelite, that you are to treat them as you treat yourself. Because remember, you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You were once slaves, mm. 
remember how I delivered you from that. You should act like me. And um, I think that's really important is that um, what seems to be laws that regulate indentured servitude only for Israelites owning Israelites. Well, what about the foreigners and all that? Well, the Bible says you are to treat foreigners just like you treat each other uh, because you were once foreigners. And so I think that parallel you're drawing is such a good one, Ken, because it helps us to put the full context here is that God is not interested in uh, favoring people because of their ethnicities. He's interested in the well-being of people because they're made in his image. How do I know it's not um, an ethnically driven thing? How do I know that? Well, here's how I know it. Whenever God uses Israel as an instrument of judging the Canaanites and the Amalekites and the Anakites and the Jebusites and the other ites that are in the Bible, whenever he does that, it's because of their actions, not because of their ethnicity. He doesn't right. do it because he does it because of their pagan temple worship, because of their child sacrifice, because of their temple prostitution, because of the, the ways in which they maraud and steal and kill and do all these things. And so he judges them for those actions, using Israel as the instrument of that judgment. But here's the interesting thing. Whenever Israel does those things, whenever the people of Israel do the exact same things, God uses those other nations as instruments to judge Israel. So he's not favoring one over the other because of ethnicity. And this ought to sound really familiar. God is not judging people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that sounds remarkably similar to yeah. Martin Luther King. King did not pull that out of the sky. Well, I guess in one sense he did because he pulled that out of the Bible. But um, right. that ethic is that ethic is in scripture. Yeah. So so what's your response then to New Testament uh, saying we should be slaves of Christ? Yeah. Well, I think that that that, that 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 goes right to what we were talking about before in terms of that's a voluntary thing is that you are you you, you hold yourself to Christ in gratitude for the debt he has paid for you um, is that there is a relationship now you have dedicated yourself and you are to work out, as Paul says, your salvation with fear and trembling because you are working out what has happened to you. Your salvation has happened. Now you're working out what it means. And what it means is to obey Christ and to listen to his commands and to follow his words. Um, and it will go well for us. And so we devote ourselves to a, to a life that, you know, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's right. But also in one sense, he also says, but in this world, you will have trouble for my name's sake. So we are to be identified with him in such a way that people can't help but smell the aroma of Christ on us. And the best way you do that is to chain yourself to him. It's a symbolic thing. Um, and the reason I know that it doesn't mean necessarily a slavery that is the kind of thing where we would be appalled by is that Paul specifically condemns slave trading as a sin. He specifically condemns it as slave trading in um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Uh, for example, you'll say, well, where, where does Paul say that, you know, slavery is wrong? Well, that's one part. Well, there's one spot. Um, the entire book of Philemon, you know, it's funny. I always read that when I was reading this book before, when I became a new Christian, I'm reading this book and I'm wondering, why is this little book? Why does this swell the pages of scripture? Why is this in there? Um, it seems to be Paul's mediating a dispute between people, but in that book, Paul is muted, mediating the dispute between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus is a freed slave. He's a runaway slave of Philemon. Philemon and Onesimus are believers. 
and he's Paul is basically saying, I know you have this 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 arrangement with him under the Roman system where you can own this man, but you ought not to do this because he's a Christian brother because he's made in God's image. And by the way, whatever debt he owes you, charge to my account. I'll pay it off. I'll redeem him, like I was redeemed by Christ. And then later, I love this in Colossians chapter four, verses seven to nine. Paul tells the Colossians to receive Tychicus, a dear brother who is coming with Onesimus, the freed slave, who is our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. He is one of your equals. So he's not returning as a slave. He's returning as an equal. And the book of Philemon, I think, is a, I, I see it now. You see the beauty of it. It's there to show us the way towards seeing people as equals, not as you know, people who owe me or who I own. There's no such thing in the biblical passage. Yeah. Scriptures, it's been made to be uh, misogynist and racist and mm -hmm. all this. And it's so not. I mean, yeah. you can pick out things Paul said, like you said, out of context, out of culture. And, and then he's been accused of that. But New Testament also says, you know, in Christ, there's no longer male or female or Greek or Jew or just we're yeah. all one in Christ. And mm -hmm. for especially believers to have any sort of misogyny or racism, it's just not acceptable. And it's um, it really it's, it's kingdom. It absolutely. It really isn't. And it doesn't matter whether it's black and white or other systems of, uh, of different ethnicities um, or between men and women. So you mentioned the woman at the well story. And when you find it, the woman at the well story is something so amazing. You know, Ken, I think that, that that story, if I'm not mistaken, has made its way into every book I've ever written um, because that, that story is so rich and deep. I love the fact, it's ironic to me, that when she comes up to the well and Jesus says, can I have a drink? And she says, why are you a Jewish man asking uh, a, a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So not only should men not be talking to women uh, uh, like this right now, because I'm, I'm below your station, but you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. We hate each other. What's going on here? And then he says, if you knew the gift of God and who was speaking to you, you would have asked him for a drink and I would have given, he would have given you um, a, a living water. And she says, how will you possibly draw this water? for the well is deep. I love that phrase because I don't think she realized just how profound of a thing she said. She's talking to the deepest of wells and she's talking at um, a, a Jacob's well. And what's interesting is, is that whenever God meets, you see this not whenever, but oftentimes when God meets like Hagar, for example, the non-Jewish woman, the non-Hebrew woman, um, in her time of travail, he meets her at a well. And this foreigner, the Samaritan, he meets her at a well. And so you keep on seeing that the well, in fact, is deep. And what does he do? He so speaks to her heart and to her, her mind that she runs back to her village, her Samaritan village, and says, come spend time with this Jewish man. This is the savior of the world. And for whatever reason, they believed her. And they spent time with him and they came to see him as the savior of the world. Jesus empowered a woman to bring ethnic unity between peoples who hate each other. But wait and a minute. Amazing. A whole village came to Christ, but she was talking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> she wasn't That's allowed right. to talk and talk yeah, about Christ. She taught them the Messiah. She, mm -hmm. she preached the gospel to that whole town. 
Indeed. There you have it. I'm glad that you put it that way. I didn't put it so bluntly or so straightforward. I love that you just did that because you're right. <laughs> exactly. If she had been, you know, in fact, it's funny when you look at the, uh, the scripture as she's leaving, the disciples are amazed. He's talking to a woman alone. And the Bible says that specifically, no one asks her, what do you seek? Like, what are you doing here? Or no one asked Jesus, like, what are you talking about? This is very uncomfortable, weird, like what just happened? Mm -hmm. He empowered a woman to be the first cross-cultural missionary, which requires speaking. The same at the tomb. I mean, yeah. it's, and so many, I, I've never added them up, but you start, like, you're just, you know, telling stories about Christ's interactions and conversations with people. It's a woman, another mm -hmm. woman, another woman that has taught us, all these men through all these centuries, the faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether it's by their speech um, or the stories and the interactions he had with them. And you can't just take, not that a line or two from Paul isn't scripture, but like you said, it's scripture out of context and out of mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, you've got to apply it to everything. Paul himself, whenever he talks about two of his favorite people, Priscilla and Aquila, he loves these two people, this, this husband and wife. And in the ancient times, in the ancient Near East, whenever you would list a husband and wife together, you would list the husband first because he is the authority and a woman second because she's secondary. But what Paul does on several occasions is that when he mentions these two, he mentions Priscilla and Aquila in that order. That's not a, a not so subtle statement because Priscilla was so sold out for the sake of the gospel and um, women like her were accredited with being the teachers of not only Timothy and Titus, but also Apollos, who is considered a spiritual heavyweight as well. So um, yeah, read the whole cut and read the Bible carefully. I think it really helps us not only to read the surrounding context outside of the Bible, but to read the words of the Bible carefully. Yeah, read it carefully. They need to read your book carefully because you've read the Bible carefully. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and just to close on this, um, it, it, it's interesting and I think it's another layer of proof that scripture isn't always talking about the slavery that we just Americans assume, because that's mm. what we learned. That's the first time we learned the word slavery yeah. was the worst use of it possible, yeah. not employment, not uh, contracts or mm -hmm. servitude or whatever. Mm -hmm. But yet I feel, well, I've committed my life to Christ, but in no way do I feel a slave Mm -hmm. But yet it says we're to be slaves of Christ and we were bought with a price. Mm -hmm. So it's all these slavery terms when it comes to our salvation, but it obviously I'm not being whipped and I came into this voluntarily. Yeah. This is a voluntary exchange that's only for my benefit. Yeah. And I get the most, I'm the only one that gets anything out of the deal. Yeah. This isn't what we call slavery. Right. Um, and what scripture says, obey your master. Well, there's, there's the South, mm -hmm. there's the Confederacy saying, you know, they would hold church services for them and say, look, mm -hmm. these are the scriptures they would show them, right? Here, obey yeah. your master. And yeah. I'm your master. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have Bible study because, over. Well, it's funny you say this, th this thing too, because I think this is what, what worth, worth bringing to a close or uh, bring up in the part of this closing uh, comments here. Um, first of all, when you read scripture again carefully, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, um, uh, when Paul sort of brings up this issue, when Paul says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. 
And then someone says, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was freed when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not be. But it's funny because people often think that Paul was okay with slavery. Live with it. Read the whole thing. It says, don't let it. If you were you called when you were a slave, don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain freedom, do so. Then later on, he says, you were bought at a price. Do not become a slave of human beings. So Paul is specifically saying the Roman system is wrong and we need to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, start to free each other from these things we've been so accustomed to. And it's those kind of comments is why um, they took his head off. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. He was an upstart and it wasn't because he was telling the Romans, you're doing everything right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. He was an outlaw. <laughs> he was an outlaw. He was. Exactly. So are yeah. you. Thank you, Abdul. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Counted among the outlaws, he said, come, follow me. People from all walks of life since have been becoming outlaws.